now more than ever. Support KPFA by attending Radioactive Resistance, featuring Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, the Bobby Cespedes Band, and the Son Jarocho All-Stars, Saturday, May 12, 7.30 p.m. at the UC Theater, Berkeley. Visit theuctheater.org for more information. See you there. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for cover to cover, frame to frame. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan and I'll be with you for the next half hour talking about film. You know, that there's some filmmakers whose films come out and I think I have to watch all of their films and I am somehow inspired or marveled by and then I want to get everybody to watch them. And uh, one of those filmmakers is uh, the filmmaker Lucrecia Martel. She is a filmmaker from Argentina and she she made her first film in 2001. It was called La Cienega, which means the swamp. Uh, it won the Ber- Berlin Alley the, um, the, uh, at the Berlin Film Festival. And she was a really interesting filmmaker to watch. So I was first excited to know two things. One, that she has a new film that is getting released and is opening up this coming Friday. Really excited about that. And then also the fact that Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive is doing a retrospective of her work. So there is an opportunity at this point to still see two of her um, three older films as well as this new film when it opens up on Friday. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about her and tell you why I think she's a great filmmaker. And then uh, I'm lucky to have an interview with her as well. So let me tell you first that uh, she was somebody who was trained, self-trained as a filmmaker, uh, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. But her films have a strong and compelling point of view. And you're pulled into the vortex of a world that seems both familiar and at the same time you slowly see that the story is not at all what you see on the surface. And the characters are often responding to their worlds in ways that you as the audience kind of become voyeurs to their strange but compelling choices that they make. And we can see elements of the impact of privilege, uh, the impact of moral choices, sexual awakenings, destructiveness, power plays. In other words, her films are both provocative and extraordinary. Uh, so her three previous films, La Cienega, Holy Girl, and The Headless Woman, are all psychological explorations of families and their complicities in various ways. The Holy Girl... Uh, is so amazing. It's the story of this adolescent girl who winds up getting bumped while she is at a conference. She's there because she works at this hotel. And uh, this person who's like an ophthalmologist bumps into her and she feels like she has to save him from the sin of bumping in to young girls. And so it's a, a funnily 
wild look, its hallucinatory look at religious devotion and sexual awakening and uh, people obsessed with young girls and then Catholic repression all in the small town in Argentina. And then her her next film, The Headless Woman, uh, was this really dynamic film that I talked about when it came out, which was many years ago now. And uh, this upper class woman is involved in a potentially tragic hit and run accident and she tries to ignore what happens and thinks that maybe only an animal was hit. But then there's this complicity of everybody that she knows sort of erasing the crime so that it becomes unclear what happened and whose memory captures what happened and whose memory did not and what reality really is. So in that way, you can see how it's all about the disappeared in Argentina and the way that uh, sort of political repression sort of becomes the rule of the game. But it's told in a way where it's about something else. So I think that that part is really remarkable. Uh, Those two films are actually available for screening. One is uh, The Holy Girl, which will be May 5th at Pacific Film Archive. And then May 10th, you can see The Headless Woman, and this is part of their series that started April 20th. So her latest feature, Zama, is based on a novel by Antonio Di Benedetto. It came out in 1956. And uh, interestingly, Di Benedetto, as soon as this book came out and was popular, he wound up being put in prison um, and died soon thereafter uh, because of the whole war of the disappeared in Argentina. But his his novel tells the story of an 18th century Spanish crown officer who's exasperated waiting for a royal transfer from his lowly South American post. And since he was born in the New World rather than in Spain, so he's both um, somebody who is not of the highest order, he's treated differently than the others. And at the beginning of the film, he seems to be powerful and in control, but slowly his trajectory mimics that of the native people that he governs over. So the film is a look from the inside of the impact of colonialism and its cancerous, destructive way that the how it affects the lives of those under the control of this foreign government. And uh, so it's really riveting. It's a very slow-paced film, but it shows shows us the impact of Spanish colonial role, rule in Argentina and also on Zama himself. The Mexican actor Daniel Jimenez Cacho stars as Don Diego de Zama, a frustrated functionary of the Spanish Empire, and he's just stranded in the boondocks. So I interviewed the the director, Lucrecia Martel, on Sunday. And even though her English was impeccable, she wanted the use of a translator. So we have a lovely translator who also (laughs) happens to be a KPFA subscriber and supporter and speaks multiple languages and is terrific. Her name is Angela Zawadzki. So what I did in this interview is that I asked Lucrecia the questions in English. She heard them in English. Uh, she answered them in Spanish, and then Angela translated them into English. So for the first question, I'll have part of Lucrecia's answer in Spanish. And then after that, we'll just hear the translation with a couple of small moments where uh, Lucrecia sort of uh, imparts some kind of information in English. So here is the interview about Lucrecia and Martel, her film Zama, with um, Angela Zawatsky as translator. 
Why don't we start with you telling me what it was about Zama that most inspired you to make this into a film? Um, bueno, esta, esta, es un, esta es una novela muy particular dentro de la literatura argentina. This is a very peculiar novel in uh, Argentinian literature. Eh, entre otras cosas porque por cómo está escrita por el lenguaje con el que está escrito que es como una, una invención no es un lenguaje que no corresponde a ninguna época realmente de la Argentina de la historia y después es que es, es un soliloquio de un hombre eh, que no, no tampoco es repre, eh, representa ninguna característica a ningún funcionario o a ningún héroe es una persona eh, digamos de las que seguramente nunca aparecerían en un libro de historia and it's also afterwards uh, this is like a soliloquy uh, and it doesn't represent any particular hero or any particular official or anybody who would appear normally in uh, history and um, this was particularly attractive to me also because this novel tells a story about this man who's trapped in uh, this place and he's also trapped in something that he doesn't think he deserves he's away from what he thinks he deserves Yes, especially what was interesting to me was the uh, structure was like fall, but at the same time, a liberation. And uh, many people think of this novel as a novel of waiting, a novel about uh, experience of waiting, but that was not the motivating factor for me. Um, I thought mostly uh, of it as uh, the problem of identity and identity as a trap. So when you say identity as a trap, I mean, it, what's interesting about the character is it seems like at first he has freedom, but over time you realize that everything he has done to others is now being done to him. Could be. Okay, I'm going to add something else uh, because I'm not answering your question. There is something that always occurs when we deal with identity. This is an idea, the kind of expectation is a very powerful expectation we have in Western culture to be someone. And especially when we talk about a country such as uh, our country, which is an ex-colony, and in some ways it continues being a colony, this is something, an idea that's very current today. So a country that was founded once again by Europeans and uh, is a country that is also filled with conflicts. It's a country that has a lot of fantasies in relation to its identity. And uh, they also, the fact that it was uh, refounded or founded again by Europeans and denying its uh, Indian population, its native population. One of the things that is so interesting in your films is that there's a, you have a certain sensibility that has a dialogue with the story that um, brings it to life in a different kind of way than one would expect. So it's almost like there's a dialogue between you and the writer of the novel and then this character in the 18th century uh, together. So what was it like coming up with the form and structure uh, for the film that that allowed that discussion to happen but also was able to kind of 
reflect your internal creativity? First of all, it was a very interesting process for me because I always write by myself. And at this time, it was not so much attentive to the guide, to a guideline. It was as if I were having a dialogue with someone, which was a very special, very beautiful experience for me, very different. So this process, especially since we're talking about this soliloquy or monologue taken from the novel and this experience of moving it uh, to the medium of cinema, what is uh, gravitating here is the experience of something that you have internalized. So, um, yes, in other words, from the reader's experience, because I didn't know this before, when you're adapting a, uh, a book into a film, you know, the first thing is that you do you, the book as the reader, the, uh, the, uh, and then films as images, and then you have to transit from one thing to the other. That's the way to do that you have to move from one to the other. Yeah. If you look at these two objects, the object, which is a book, and the object, film, there are two things that are quite apart from each other. But if you observe that right in the middle you have the reader, scriptwriter, the whole thing changes. And so first of all, your experience as a reader is something that suddenly appears, a stand of this kind of nature which is not really explained. First of all, the uh, the, the, the words themselves imposed to the, the book by the by the reader. When you read these words Yes, you have the rhythm that becomes reality within the reader and then there is uh, the, the sound that is within the reader and then, of course, the rhythm imposed by the author, by the writer. And this sound, that, of course, the sound that you know how words are pronounced, the sound are uh, referenced. They refer to uh, things that have their own environment, their own uh, sound, their own imagery, of course. And this world that starts being created within us, and it, in a very special way, starts being combined with the reader, created alongside with the reader, that is much closer to cinema. It's something that is not that far from cinema. Now, writing is not what remains inside of me as a reader, but on the other hand, the mass of sounds and images generated by the writing. And that's the area, precisely, where you have to work in in order to think about a film. It's no longer the book. It's something different, something in which your experience becomes the mediating factor. So many people, for instance, read Sama and they think that it's a very um, anxiety and anguish producing novel and they feel overwhelmed at the end. And other people with whom I identify f are far more, you know, they, they say, yes, some, some of it is anxiety-producing, but they have fun, and they end up like with me. There's a euphoria in the long run. And that kind of movement that uh, drives people towards this experience of euphoria uh, is precisely the reason, seemingly absurd, to make a film. <laughs> well, is it your euphoria that you are somehow communicating? Uh, because it's very particular. Uh, the way that you tell stories, uh, it often seems like you're saying something in one way, but then pretty soon you realize, no, it's it's the reverse. Something something is shifting. Um, uh, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So I I don't know if that's I don't know that's the euphoria you know the allowing something to uh, 
to be refocused in a way that one would not expect. When I use the word euphoria, I'm talking about it in the most classic sense, something that brings you to happiness. So the word explains the uh, the well-being one feels, uh, but it doesn't uh, explain what it brings to that well-being. And I still, this is the way I still feel after having made the film and having been in with the, with that novel. I'm feeling like I'm in a state of happiness, a state of grace, which I don't know what it has to do with the film. <laughs> after all this experience. We- it's like the viewer, of course. We're like the uh, the sport of humanity, and we're looking for sense, making sense of things. And this sport that we exercise all the time allows me to uh, build scenes in which that uh, search somehow gets lost. Maybe something else will suddenly appear. I don't know how to explain this. And there's um, something that uh, suddenly comes up, which is there is a confusion as readers and as audience that we mix up the, re- the, the book and the film. They redo the interpretation, the plot, okay. with, with okay. the book or with the film. And we're always like, like mad people uh, pursuing the plot. So this is, uh, in order to uh, clear things up, uh, so maybe not confusing it so much, it's like uh, mixing up a house and a home. Uh, or the belief that a whole bunch of windows and bricks and doors make up a home. So in order to disrupt this search for meaning, um, I, it allows me to access other areas which maybe turn out to be far more interesting. So let's talk specifically about uh, uh, when you were actually shooting the film and working with uh, Daniel Jimenez Cacho. Yes, uh, and uh, it it looks like it was a very uh, intense shoot. And I'm I'm wondering what that process was like and how different it was from when you were doing more uh, uh, shooting in like the hotel or the city or uh, and the others. Honestly, I don't understand why I didn't start earlier uh, making films with a larger percentage of uh, outdoor scenes because I love, this is what I like, is outdoors and the outdoor. And it's the case that we were forced to uh, shoot um, outdoors, exteriors, and it was a lot of fun, actually, even though things were flooded, there were a lot of snakes, a lot of insects, and the crew, in in spite of all this, instead of being in disagreement, we ended up uh, working together in cohesion. And these are things that, of course, you're afraid of when you're in in a set, you start feeling like uh, complicated things begin to happen, like uh, the mules run away, etc. Well, and um, again, talking about this, we ended up having a wonderful spree de corps. And Daniel, who uh, had to shoot in the middle of all this mud, he was covered with mud, uh, all these difficult situations. His ability to concentrate was amazing. He was like in a totally different world. Um, He was like a Buddhist monk totally concentrated, totally paying attention. It was like a parallel world that he was in. So you have uh, an idea of what was going on when we uh, going on, excuse me, when we uh, ate, when we had food somewhere, and we would choose the best place in order to eat. We set the chairs and the tables, and then all of a sudden things began to sink at least 30, um, 30 centimeters down into the mud, and so we all end up, ended up deep in the mud. <laughs> 
inspired all of that that could have ended up being a disaster uh, created a real spirit esprit de corps and the interiors were shot in different places inside uh, in, a, in close to a lake um, near Buenos Aires so we're talking about distances uh, that separated us from one place to the other up to 1700 kilometers yeah, yeah. 1700 kilometers it was exhausting. The shooting was truly exhausting. But um, I would never, um, you know, feel uh, that I shouldn't have done it. I would do it again every day. And another thing is, I had never been in this kind of milieu and or set with uh, costumes from the 18th century, animals, indigenous tribes, and it was a certain an adventure that gave it a totally different sense. Yeah, 18th century. Well, it both had a feeling of reality, but also there was an absurd quality too. You know that the the wigs are a little off, the llama pops in. Uh, you know the bed becomes a place where funny things are hung from outside. So uh, that was a risk. I could imagine that. When you were in the editing room, you could think, "Oh, this was a big mistake." So, how did you, how how did you hold on to both ideas? Well, that was very clear to us from the very beginning. Those of us who are at the head of the crew, we wanted to uh, get away from any kind of formality or solemnity of uh, uh, periodic um, uh, historical periods in which are treated usually that are not the present tense. And especially Latin America, when you try to do an epic film, a period film, it's very expensive. And um, when you try to move into the past, and it's usually something that has to do with an epic quality, uh, heroes, uh, nation building, that kind of thing. And we wanted to be as far as possible from that. And so it's a very much a, a very male, a macho hero. So we designed uh, costumes that were much more feminine or gay. But from that gay point of view, we thought about it the whole time because we wanted to uh, focus on the past in a very fresh way. And all of this, of course, this whole idea of costumes and wigs and all of that, all of this comes from an idea from a prior, uh, previous process that I had, an experience I had, which was a science fiction film that I was trying to make. And it's, uh, it was uh, based on a, on a comic uh, strip, uh, very iconic in Argentina called Eternauta. And also thinking about how to uh, create a strange future, because this writer also wrote in the 1950s, he was talking about a very strange future. And as I reflected on this, I realized that there is a, a, a willingness to be free when you're making science fiction films, which does not happen naturally when you are making a film about the past. It could happen because history is based on so-called facts that have happened. Because the future, of course, doesn't. But we are all aware of how arbitrary uh, the choice is when we start telling a story about the fact that the past and the way it is told. So how sure can we be about the difference between the events that are being projected towards the future and things that have happened in the fact in the past? I don't think there is that big difference. And both uh, in both cases, there is it's a hypothetical situation either way. And so I thought that from the political and philosophical point of view, it would be better to uh, set up history as science fiction instead of this uh, unquestionable uh, facts that we usually define as history. 
this irreversible statements that we uh, uh, make about the past and uh, this this kind of thing, this, this assertion that can be so dangerous. I think it's very poisonous, like those those uh, films or those pictures that say that they're looking for the truth or that they're making truthful statement. Again, I think that's very dangerous and very poisonous. We wanted to uh, create a very def- definitely a very arbitrary and constructed discourse. So we thought this could um, allow us to to uh, provide um, and set up uh, much more interesting thoughts and much less dangerous and more interesting too. Well, then I just have one last question, which is the film starts with Zama uh, watching these native women and they call him a voyeur, uh-huh. right? And and I guess in some ways you're playing then not just with Zama and these women, but you're also playing with us as the audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wanted to ask you about that. Yes, that's true, that when we were uh, setting up that scene, it would be not similarly this situation. But it's also true that Sama spends more time listening to the women than watching them. And, of course, uh, when he's being accused of being a voyeur, this is something, of course, that happens in cinema. <laughs> yes. So uh, I just want to say that it's uh, that all of your films are so remarkable in that uh, <coughs> I watch them and then I think I am, each time I see them, I see that they're about another layer that you're doing many layers and that's so wonderful to have that in the film so I want to thank you Um, thank you very much but I think that more than that layers which the viewer of course finds is the fact that I try not to uh, be a mad um, making mad statements about reality so as a director and, um, and also the, the viewer, the uh, audience, of course, when you're uh, at the, in the set and also in the, of course, in the, when you're viewing the film, I think that that way we are in a much more active communion in terms of the thinking. You didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and in that sense, I think it's very awkward and uh, very uh, rude and lacking in respect when we're being accused of not respecting the audience or not being interested in the audience. Um, because all of this is really being created for a sensitive, intelligent uh, audience, a uh, viewer who's not uh, happy with reality, just the very opposite. They're uncomfortable with the way things are, with reality. So it's just the opposite of not uh, listening or paying attention to the viewer. Okay. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Uh, you're tuned to Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and that was an interview with filmmaker from Argentina, Lucrecia Martel, via the translator um, Angela Zawadzki. Her film Sama opens this Friday at the Shattuck in Berkeley, the Opera Plaza in San Francisco, as well as the Alamo Draft House in San Francisco. And you can see her two earlier films, Holy Girl on May 5th and The Headless Woman on May 10th at Bia, um Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. I also just want to briefly mention that last month I talked about the film The Judge, directed by Erica Cohen, about a, a Palestinian woman who's a judge. And that film is also opening this Friday. It's going to be at the Rialto Elmwood in Berkeley and at the Roxy in San Francisco. So you'll have a chance to see that film. I talked about it in uh, relation to the San Francisco International Film Festival, but it's now opening. 
So once again, Lucrecia Martel, amazing filmmaker, uh, different opportunities to see her film, including Zama, the new one, which opens Friday. You've been tuned to Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I'm here regularly talking about film. It was great to hear from you today, and I hope for you to hear from me, and I'll be back soon. Thanks so much for listening. that Yanis Varoufakis, former finance minister of Greece, is the co-founder of a global grassroots movement to revive democracy. He's also the author of several outstanding books, including Talking to My Daughter About the Economy and the new blistering expose, Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment. Both Noam Chomsky and Slavo Zizek praise him highly. Many consider Varoufakis, this leather-jacketed motorcycling rebel who openly opposes the international corporate class to be the most interesting man in the world. Are they right? Find out Wednesday evening, May 